Welcome back, everyone, to the Alex and Mo I Am a PT podcast, and we are still celebrating National Physical Therapy Month. So it's interesting that we have the daughter of a physical therapist and current professor at University of Pittsburgh DPT program, Dr. Ali Bov, joining us tonight as we discuss is the DPT in jeopardy. So if you have not yet subscribed to our YouTube channel or followed us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or TikTok, please take a moment to do so now. All right. Welcome, Ali. Welcome, Alex. Great to see you guys on tonight. Hi. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you, Ali. Really appreciate you taking out the time uh, to us tonight. Um, we know you're a very busy individual and, and time is precious. So. We are definitely uh, very thankful for you to take the time out to be with us. Thank you so much for the invitation. So, Ali, you, you know, Jeopardy is a show for people. <laughs> Why has it been a lifelong dream of yours to go on a show that, you know, is, is that difficult? <laughs> <laughs> So I grew up watching it with my grandparents pretty much every day. Um, oh, where wow. where I grew up, um, my parents' like side yard ran into my grandparents' backyard. And every day after dinner, I'd run down into their backyard and sit outside with them. And my pap was really good at um, telling the time from the sun. So he knew when it was 7 o'clock and it was time to go inside and watch Jeopardy. And um, he didn't have a lot of formal education. He like was held back a year or two in school, finished high school, tried college, but then got drafted um, and then never went back and finished. But he knew every single answer because he, that man had read every book that there is to read. He knew all the history questions. He knew all the literature questions. You know, maybe when he was in his 80s, pop culture wasn't really his thing anymore, but he was just so good at it. Uh, so I grew up loving the show and wanting to get on there someday and um, just really valued having lots of random trivial knowledge that is not useful in everyday life, but great if you want to go on a game show. How, how was your experience in not only, obviously this being something that was far more important to you than just being on Jeopardy, right? You obviously had a connection to your grandfather and I'm sure that that was a major motivation uh to want to do it what was that process like i mean we obviously we see tv shows and we always wonder uh you know what it is or how people actually get to be on those shows so i had unsuccessfully tried for years um so i've heard of people who managed to get on their first try i am not one of them it took me about 10 years um so every year i would take the online test and would hear nothing and then take it again the following year. Um, twice previously, I was invited to do a full audition, which is where you travel to whatever cities you know nearest to you that they're auditioning in. You take a written test. They interview you on camera with the producers. You play a fake game with buzzers against other prospective contestants. And then you wait and you wait and you wait. And after a year and a half, if you haven't heard anything, they didn't pick you and you start all over again the next time they do the online test. So I had gone through that process twice previously and not made it on. And then this time because of the COVID-19 pandemic, the full audition was 
over Zoom and you took your written exam in a lockdown browser, it was very much like what some of my students were going through with exams. Um, played a fake game using a pen as my buzzer uh, against some other prospective contestants. And that time I waited about a year and then I got the call. So it was actually about this time last year that I found out I was going to LA to be on the show. So that experience, um, how can you use that experience, the being wait, on a wait list, you know, attempting, not getting called back? It took you 10 years. What advice can you give to a student who has been trying to get into PT school or trying to pass the NPTE exam or not being as successful immediately in whatever they want to pursue in life? What advice would you give them based on that experience of finally getting on the show? I think it's an exercise in perseverance, you know? Um, it was 10 years for me, but I got on the show. I got to live out my dream. And I think sometimes realigning our expectations is okay too. So, you know, when I was 20, did I think someday I might be a Jeopardy champion? Sure. Now, when I got on the show when I was 36, did I think I was going to win? No, it took me 10 tries just to get on the show. My goal was to make it to final, not be in red numbers, be there for the final question, not get kicked off the stage before. Um, but I still did it. And it, the experience was not any less worthwhile because I came in second. Um, and so I think, you know, persevering and also, and this may particularly relate to people who have been trying for a while to get into PT school, finding something that makes you a little bit more unique and really highlighting that. So my first two auditions, when the in the little space where it asks your occupation, I said professor, because I felt like that was probably the most accurate description of what I do every day. But if you watch Jeopardy, like two thirds of them are professors. They don't need any more professors. But I've watched every day for most of my life, and I've only ever seen a couple of physical therapists. And so this time I said, I'm a physical therapist. And in my interview with the producers, they asked me a ton of questions about physical therapy and what we do and what type of patients I see and what my background was. And they were more interested in me um, when that's what I highlighted instead of being one in another very long string of professors who have appeared on Jeopardy. So we typically have a problem with branding physical therapy. So what did you share with the producers of Jeopardy about physical therapy? What are we, what is the profession about? So they asked me specifically what type of patients I see in my career. And I said, all of them, <laughs> they're adults. Um, like many of us who are living out the student loan debt crisis, um, I've had a lot of side hustles. So. My primary background was outpatient, general orthopedic, but I worked weekends in home health, acute inpatient rehab, acute inpatient, skilled nursing facilities, um, name an adult setting, I've worked in it, uh, at least on a PRN or weekend basis. And so what I shared that attracted me to the profession and what continues to attract me to our profession is how many hats you can put on and how your role is different and the patients that you're seeing are different, even though it's still your same you, you didn't have to change your education, you didn't have to get a new degree or a new certification. If you get tired of what you're doing, you can go put on another hat and have a completely different job. 
that, you know, is really interesting and challenging in a different way. And that's what I love about our profession. And, but I recognize that's also part of our branding challenge, right? Is what is a physical therapist when you can be so many different things. Very true. Very true. You sound like Alex and I multiple side hustles, you know, gotta, gotta multiple grind, settings. Yeah. Multiple settings. But I, I, I love, I love hearing it. Um, you have a close relationship with your family. You talked about your granddad loving jeopardy, but your dad is, a, well, was, is he still a physical therapist? Was a physical He's therapist? He's retired. He's retired. So, um, did you get into physical therapy because of your dad? Because I know I have a challenge explaining to my 10 year old nephew. Well, he's about to be 10. What exactly it is that I do? He just thinks I go and play and laugh with people. So, <laughs> uh, growing up, did you know that's the profession that you wanted to get into? Definitely not. Um, okay. My, when I was younger, my dad would talk about cadaver lab at the dinner table. And I was like, that's disgusting. I don't want to be a physical therapist. I don't, I don't want to hang out around dead bodies. Why would I do that? And now here I am, I teach anatomy. Oh. So, that's, so that, plan, that plan of avoiding that did not work. Um, I think it wasn't really until high school that I realized I like science. And once I realized I was good at science, that I want to do something that requires me to know a lot of science, but I don't want to be in a lab. I'm, I, I like people too much. And so I started looking into healthcare and what became important to me was the opportunity to actually know my patients and spend a significant amount of time with them um, and really make a difference for them, not just be someone that comes into a hospital room for three minutes and leaves and goes in charts. So. The more I looked into it, the more physical therapy made sense. I wasn't trying to be a chip off the old block, but I sure ended up being one. Um, even went to the same PT school as my dad. And what school was so, that? Uh, Columbia. Oh. Did you nice. ever have a work with your dad? I'm sorry, say that again? Did you have a chance to work with your dad at any point? I didn't. Um, so I, I graduated PT school in 2010. And my dad retired in, I think, 2013. So we had a pretty limited overlap where we were both working. Um, and I live about two hours from my family now. Okay. So, so, but he also, he was the only PT at a small community hospital in Somerset County, Pennsylvania for most of my life. And because it was a small hospital, he was the inpatient PT and the outpatient PT and the home health PT. So he had that nice variety of getting to be everything that a physical therapist can be too. And, and I think that made me feel a lot more comfortable as I started moving into these different settings, um, thinking I can do all of these things with my education. Um, when I was in PT school, uh, one of my uh, advisors told me because I specifically wanted, and I, I made a video about it this, earlier today, I only wanted to do sports medicine, but he basically said, do not limit yourself, have options. And I tried to tell him, I don't care. Just put me in orthopedic, uh, clinical rotations, but you know, they didn't listen to me and start putting me in like skill nursing facilities and hospitals. 
which turned out to be perfect because I got to experience all those different settings. So what advice would you give to students who have like this one track tunnel vision that this is the only thing that I want to get into, I want to learn about, and then they get into it and start complaining about burnout? I think that it's really important to find value in every treatment setting and every patient population, whether it's what you think you're going to end up doing for the rest of your life. Because, you know, let's say you are that student that only wants to work with athletes. Well, if you're not paying attention in neuro and then your patient has a concussion like Tua a few weeks ago, you're not going to have learned everything that you need to know to take care of that patient. If you don't give your all when you're in an inpatient rotation where you have the chance to learn about complex medical conditions, then when you have athletes who have chronic illnesses or who have, you know, undiagnosed cardiac issues that you only find out about when they collapse on the field, then you're not going to have the strong enough background that you need to be the best person to take care of that patient. And so I think whatever setting we're in, there's something that we can learn from that that will make us better in another setting, even if we at first glance don't see the the relationship between an 85 year old with 12 comorbidities who is sedentary and can't get out of bed on their own and the 17 year old college football bound, you know, athlete. Um, so I think it's really important that that everybody find something of value in every rotation that they're in or every class that they're in. Um, and I haven't been a CI for a while now, but we certainly see, you know, sometimes teaching within a program that your folks that want to go into adult rehab might not want to try as hard in peds. People who want to work in peds might not want to try as hard in geriatrics, but so much of what we learn in those classes, plays a role in those other settings that we're really selling ourselves short and making ourselves not as good of a PT if we, if we don't take those seriously and, and give them the time that they, that they deserve. And is there room for home health clinical rotations now um, at PT programs? Because I know when Alex and I were back in school in the, you know, over a decade ago, there was none. So, and very few schools still participate in it. So um, there's definitely space for that. We we don't have it often within our program, but I have had student advisees who do home health rotations. Um, it's you know it's a little bit more difficult logistically to organize the you know transportation and liability aspect of that, but absolutely because where else can you practice orthopedics and neurologics and geriatrics and you know pretty much everything. everything. <laughs> in one rotation. So yeah. you have to be so well-rounded to be a good home health therapist. And I think it's great at teaching creativity because, you know, you only have whatever equipment you can fit in your bag. So we're not doing a whole lot of RDLs with a, you know, large weights or something, but how can we make this work in your house? What do you have in your garage that we can use to mimic this? I think it's a great exercise in creativity for PTs. Absolutely. You, 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 mentioned or you tweeted uh, earlier this month in celebration of uh, a PT month that you were having discussions with your students on, you know, hot topics or, or 
maybe controversial issues, however you want to word it. What came out of that discussion with your students? Um, or, you know, was there like a common theme or something? Sure. So uh, we started doing this, I think, two years ago in my anatomy class that um, every palpation lab that we have in the month of October, we take the first five or 10 minutes and just talk about something related to professional issues for us. And I asked the students to come with the ideas, which is challenging because they've been in PT school for five weeks at that point. They joined APTA like last week. Um, so they haven't been getting informed on, on these necessarily yet unless they've been working within the field in a different capacity. Um, but I love seeing what they come up with. So um, yesterday we were talking about working with patients who have limited English proficiency and how we deal with that um, in clinics, especially in clinics that are you know, not part of large health systems that have interpreters readily available. Uh, we also talked yesterday about volume-based care versus value-based care, which is an awesome topic for being a month into PT school. Um, last week, we were talking about there's a, a bill working its way through the Pennsylvania legislature that would significantly expand the scope of practice for athletic trainers. And so we were talking about that, which is tough because I'm not an athletic trainer, but a lot of my students are. And so there could definitely be different opinions in the room about that. Um, you know, people wanting to, on one hand, protect physical therapy and what it is that we feel that we should be able to do and others shouldn't infringe upon. Um, but I've got other licensed professionals in the room who um, belong to their professional societies who are who are trying to expand their scope into an area that traditionally has been more physical therapy, uh, physical therapy's job. So those are some of the things we've talked about so far this this PT month. Um, I also try to do what I can to help the students learn a little bit about how PT is governed. So you know how is the APTA organized into its sections and academies and components. On a local level, how do you get involved? On a state level, how do you get involved? What's the board? What's the House of Delegates? Um, because, I mean, I'm sure you've seen our House of Delegates. It's not, it's not young. Um, I'm one of the younger ones there, and I absolutely love serving and would love for more of my students to jump into that when they are young professionals. Uh, well, um, you did touch on something that we are concerned about, which is the volume-based care versus value-based care. So as new PT students, what have they been saying? Is it something that you're looking forward to when they graduate? I think that... I think that so many of today's PT students are up for the challenge of wanting to be reimbursed based on the results that they can produce, not the units that they can bill. And particularly perhaps because of the COVID pandemic, there are so many students who have had no observation experience outside of the outpatient setting. And, you know, I think outpatient is where we talk about this the most and talk about productivity standards and, and high volume billing as, as a greatest concern. Um, they, they've seen it. They've seen therapists experiencing burnout because they're expected to bill so many units or see so many patients in a day and they're really reimbursed on how many patients they see and how many units they bill and not whether those patients get better. And 
what I see in our students is they're, they're up for the challenge and would prefer a system where what they can create is worth more than what they can build. Um, I think they're excited about it. I think we're all wondering what it's going to look like and how is it going to get implemented, but we all know that that's where we need to head and it's where we want to head. Um, I think a lot of our young students see themselves, see our profession as a great alternative to other more expensive interventions or treatment strategies. And hey, if we're able to be both cheaper and more effective, we should be paid for that. So I'm perhaps cool. this can also be a you know partial solution to our reimbursement problems that we have. Now on the reimbursement uh, issues, obviously we're all aware that like almost there, uh, Medicare, and then obviously the private payers follow suit. You know, just looking for ways to to cut um, reimbursement, and, and therefore uh, directly affects the you know money making potential of of a therapist and, and business owners. As being somebody who is in the academic side of the profession, uh, but also being uh, assuming you're younger than I am, so I feel according to my be ready to apply for Medicare because I just turned 40. Um, but uh, what are your thoughts on where our profession is going um, in terms of the amount of money it costs for our degree? It's three year degree. Uh, you have all taken out 100 thousand plus in student loans and then we come out in probably i don't know what the average is as of late but i'm gonna guess somewhere 70 to 80 maybe um but it what are your thoughts on it and have you had those discussions with your students absolutely and if i can i have those discussions with them before they become my students um i i want everyone to make an informed decision and you know, a lot of our students are collectively as a field, not ours at my institution. But, you know, we're, they're deciding when they're 16, 17, you're not going to, you're not well equipped to make fantastic financial decisions at that age. You just aren't. Um, and I was a prime example of that. I went to um, undergrad at a school where we had a three plus three program and they gave me excellent, excellent scholarships for the undergraduate portion. And so that's all I thought about was, well, great, I'm going to go to undergrad almost for free. So this is going to be worth it. And then heading into my senior year, I added up what the graduate portion was going to cost me. And unfortunately, at that time, and this is no longer the case at my undergraduate institution, but at the time, all graduate programs were billed by the credit. And as you know, PT school is 18 to 20 credits a semester. You go year round. And I added it up, and this is back in the mid 2000s. It was going to be well over 100 grand, and I was like, "That can't be right." <laughs> um, so I ended up leaving and not staying in the three plus three program, even though I was getting a great education and absolutely, you know, loved my professors, loved what I was learning. But I left because of the bottom line, and I think most people then might look at the degrees on my office wall and be like. You're saying you went to Columbia for less money? Yeah, I did. They had scholarships. Um, it, it was cheaper anyway, and they had scholarships. 
So it cost me an extra semester of my life because I didn't stay in that three plus three where you can finish sooner. Um, but I spent significantly less money by leaving for slightly cheaper pastures. Um, but still graduated with more student loan debt than my first house cost. Um, oh. Props to Pittsburgh, real estate is cheap here. Um, <laughs> I was gonna say. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I think that we were getting to a point where the return on investment is questionable for a lot of students. And we are already a profession that is not reflective of the communities in which we serve in terms of diversity in all senses. We definitely don't want to keep going down this road where the only people who can afford to become physical therapists are people who already are from high income families. That's not going to serve our profession or our patients well at all if everyone coming into the profession has very limited experience and knowledge of working with patients who are from less advantaged backgrounds. Um, we can't let that become, we can't, we can't go further down the road of being a white upper middle class and upper class profession. That's not how we get trust and exposure in communities that need us. So we have to change things um, at my institution. And again, I'm speaking my opinion only and not on behalf of anyone else there. But in the last couple of years, we've gone from a nine semester program to an eight semester program and now a seven semester program. Um, so our program is two semesters of tuition cheaper than it used to be. And you're getting into that first job with a real paycheck eight months sooner than you used to be. And I wish more programs would find ways to do this. Um, I think that well, I think the three year program needs to start fading out. Ah, you made some very, very interesting points. Um, we have to touch further on those, right, Alex? Um, absolutely, absolutely. But I definitely had to hold two full-time jobs while I was in PT school to pay for PT school. So I was a graduate assistant that paid for my tuition and a graduate assistant at a dorm that paid for my room and board. Nice. And... I was told that you shouldn't have a job while in PT school, but I did not have another choice. And that made me start out with less debt than the majority of students who graduate with a master's in physical therapy. Now, um, I went to a historically black university program for my PT degree. There are very few of those in the country. Um, I think there's FAMU, there's Alabama State, University of Maryland, Eastern Shore, and Hampton, along with Howard. Um, let's be frank, the outlook at University of Maryland, Eastern Shore's DPT program is not reflective of a HBCU. And there are some challenges with my alma mater, Howard University's um, accreditation uh, currently. Uh, Hampton, and I'm not sure about their enrollment, nor am I about FAMUs and ASU. But the wait list for physical therapy is long. There are a lot of barriers financially for people who look like Alex and myself to get into PT school. The majority of times 
we tend to be the first ones in our families to go to to grad school, maybe even college. So the cost of a hundred and something thousand dollars seems like a far reaching opportunity for a lot of families, black and brown families. And if the costs continue to rise, you are correct. There are not going to be people looking like Alex and I in the profession. And you said your students brought up about language barriers. It's not going to get better if we continue to have like upper middle class Caucasian physical therapists who refuse to learn Spanish to work with, you know, Spanish speaking clients as the country becomes increasingly, increasingly, sorry, um, Hispanic or learning other language like uh, Mandarin or something else, because we are becoming a more diverse population. But we get pushback even in the House of Delegates when we try to address social issues. So even you being part of House of Delegates, you being a professor, how can we mold minds to be more inclusive or think about considering social determinants of health and all those other socioeconomic issues in, in physical therapy? How can we get better at that? Yeah. And, and it's a vicious cycle, right? Because the people that we can learn the most from are really busy because they are getting asked to do so much of the work to teach the rest of us. Um, and we can't just rely on a couple of the same thought leaders within our profession to teach all the rest of us how to be more inclusive, how to create a more inclusive environment. And we also, we also have a vicious cycle because there are only so many minoritized folks with PhDs, EDDs, what have you, that programs are looking to hire and we end up just cannibalizing each other because it's the same folks that we're going for because if we're not getting them into the profession, we're also not getting them into terminal degree programs. And so we need to just keep going back further and further and further and further to identify people who might have an interest in this and open doors and pave roads for them to get here. Um, and then hopefully we won't be in a situation where we're always relying on the same people to teach us everything. Um, some of the things we do at my institution, we recently started our own ADAPT program. So ADAPT is Advancing Diversity in Physical Therapy, was founded by Dr. Greg Hicks at the University of Delaware. And it focuses on undergraduate students who are interested in the rehab sciences, may be good candidates for PT school. And opening some of those doors, paving some of those roads. So knowing that students who are minoritized are somewhat less likely to already have a pre-existing relationship with a physical therapist, then that might make observation hours more difficult. That might make letters of recommendation more difficult. Um, with our first-gen college students, it might be more difficult for them to get great feedback on their writing and work on their essays, things like that. So ADAPT at Pitt is a program where we, uh, in this, we have a summer, summer scholars program, I believe it's called, it's run by Tara Hankin in our program, who's wonderful. 
Um, we identify students who are from traditionally underrepresented backgrounds in physical therapy who are interested in PT. Usually they're juniors or going into junior or senior year. So they haven't applied yet. And we help them identify mentors, help them identify observation experiences, help them determine who are going to be the best people to ask for those letters of recommendation, give them feedback on their writing, help them identify you know, good topics for essays, um, really just try to open some of those doors so that they're absolutely putting their best foot forward when they're already deserving hardworking students who deserve to get into PT school. And we just want to make sure that what gets put into PT cast reflects who they are. Um, but that means that that student already has to be in undergrad and exposed to physical therapy enough to find this program and apply for it. And so I think the next step that more programs need to take, including my own, is to go back even further. Um, you know, high schools, middle schools, as soon as that student realizes, hey, science might be my thing or healthcare might be my thing, I want to help people. Um, start creating those opportunities and, and helping folks make connections that they're going to need to get into college um, to, you know, have the opportunities to learn more about PT. Um, the, the, there's so much that we need to do and we're well, not even close. Um, but like you said, we, we all need to be doing more, every single program and every single PT. Um, I know at my institution we're, we're we're working on it. We're not perfect yet, but I'm I'm happy to see that in the last couple of years our student population is becoming more visibly diverse. Our faculty is becoming more visibly diverse, um, and it's just a challenge of retaining those students, making sure that if they decide to come to us, that they feel included and welcomed and valued, um, and never tokenized or expected to do certain things only because of having a certain underrepresented background. We need to get to the point where that's a norm and it's like, oh, your parents didn't go to college either. Cool. And not, oh my gosh, your parents didn't go to college. That's so unusual in physical therapy school. Oh, <laughs> well, you brought up a, a great uh, point of discussion. I mean, we, we focus a lot and obviously with there's been a push um, amongst, you know, some therapists and people in, in positions of powers to diversify, right? We need more therapists that look like Mo and myself who've had experiences similar to what her and I uh, may have experienced. But but that, that conversation is usually happening in the arena students the practicing licensed physical therapist, right? Usually when we have those conversations, that's where we're talking about seeing the, the diversity and, and seeing those people that think that we need to hit a little bit harder on. And it sounds like you guys are doing that at Pitt is we need those people also teaching our students to kind of look like us, to, to speak like us, to, to have those same uh habits and mannerisms and and everything that culture right and, and that is an obstacle because you know a lot of i know a lot of good therapists who have been practicing for years and have their dpt their specialist specializations etc they don't have the phd 
have these things are kind of required to get into that academic world. Um, so that's a, a barrier for somebody who might want to teach, who probably is equipped to teach, would be good to connect with the students and, and help them grow much earlier in their as opposed to having to find the CI or having to find that first job and hopefully make that connection with whether it be a coworker or just a local therapist, right? Um, I was fortunate enough to, I, I worked at the University of South Florida's uh, DPT program here in Tampa, and I got to teach. I don't have a PhD, but I was a clinical faculty member. So I was partly in the, the we had on campus um, and through was able to do some teaching, right? So is ways around it, but I do think we need to promote uh, and have those avenues for those individuals who are in the team of it and not so much the clinical care uh, side of it, because we need to hit it from, from all different angles. And, and, and I'm glad you mentioned that because I feel like that's often forgotten or just kind of put to the side or just doesn't even come across people's minds. Well, I, I think Alex is trying to be polite before, <laughs> before you answer, before you reply, Ali, it is a barrier. Let's be honest. Okay. The more specifics you put on becoming a professor, like getting the PhD, that's time consuming uh, for yeah. black and brown therapists. After you finish and you get your DPT and you pass your boards, you want to start earning money because you have family to take care of. You have things to take care of. I can't use the word that I really want to use. So it, it, it is a barrier. So let's be honest. Then asking somebody to have a specialty uh, certification in order to teach, I mean, honestly, that's bullshit, in my opinion, okay? And I'm going to be frank. So this platform that we have on this podcast, Alex talked okay, we trying to educate share experiences that other students can benefit from and other professionals. And unfortunately, it doesn't take sitting in a classroom to share that experience. Representation, representation does matter. And if there continues to be barriers preventing people like Alex and I without the, well, Alex has a specialty certification. I don't. Uh, had. Had. That's a separate had. topic. Yeah, because the APTA makes it damn near impossible to keep it um, on top of the fact that you got to pay an arm to keep it. Like I said, discussion for a separate day. <laughs> yes. So those barriers preventing or limiting us from getting into, into being a, a professor, adjunct, full-time, part-time, whatever you want to call it, um, is also decreasing the amount of representation that you have in the profession. And people tend to want to be aligned with people who look like them. And I mean, I give kudos, especially to Dr. Lisa Van Hoos, and I pray that she doesn't get tired out or burnt out because we are expecting a lot from her when it comes to inclusion, diversity, and everything like that, pulling her left, right, and center. So my prayers are on her like almost daily that she doesn't get burned out and, and be like, you know what? Screw this shit. But we need more people like her in, in academia. And honestly, there's some, 
leeway that needs to be given so that it can be increased. So that's just my take on it. So I had to go on a little rant. So I apologize. No, I don't. Well, I, I co-sign all of that. Um, thank you. Right. I think, you know, we're, we're coming up on a shortage of um, terminal academic degree educated faculty. Our average faculty member in a PT program with a PhD or an EDD is, I think, like 57 years old or somewhere around there. We're getting, we're, I think we're going to approach a crisis point because when my father's generation was able to get a bachelor's degree in PT or a certificate, um, my dad has a post-grad certificate that took uh, 14 months, I think, that cost $800. You can do that and then eventually go also get a PhD or an ADD or what have you. When you are finishing your DPT with 200,000 in debt and you're 25 years old and you want to support your family or start a family or buy a house and the cost of housing is astronomical compared to what it was a generation ago, just the proportion of people who can access that additional education is getting less and less. And I'm so glad to see that there have been a lot of creative proliferation of DSC and SCD and DHSC and those types of terminal degrees, especially the ones that focus on teaching, because I know that I definitely was under the impression when I was in PT school and was an early career PT that if I wanted to teach, I needed a PhD. And then once I got a PhD, I was like, I didn't learn how to teach. <laughs> um, <laughs> Now, that's fine for me because I do a lot of research. Um, I wanted the PhD to become a researcher, and that is what I spend most of my time now doing. Um, I, I only coordinate one course now um, and then get involved with whatever else I can because I just love being around students. It energizes me. Um, but you don't need a PhD to know how to teach. At, at, at most schools, a PhD is not going to teach you how to teach. Um, you know, you want to get into teaching, go to one of these faster programs that's actually going to teach you how to teach. Um, your students would, would much rather have the person with an EDD or a DSC or a DHSC that focused on teaching than a person with a PhD that learned how to conduct randomized clinical trials, which, you know, we need those people in our profession too, but that's not who the students are looking for to be an excellent educator necessarily. Um, I was fortunate during my PhD that my mentor was really supportive of me wanting to learn research, but also wanting to learn to be an educator. And so he helped to create additional opportunities for me to learn how to be a teacher. Um, but that wasn't really a mandatory component of my program, nor is it a mandatory component of most PhD programs. So I'm glad that there are becoming other more creative ways of meeting those CAPTI requirements where half of your faculty have to have a terminal academic degree. Um, but I think that as educational institutions, we need to be more creative in identifying folks who flat out don't have a terminal academic degree, but are interested in it and finding ways to bring them into the fold of academia and finding ways to help facilitate them getting those degrees that will help the program meet the CAPTI requirements, um, but mostly to develop that faculty member into a person who's going to be 
a really good role model for students, a very effective educator, etc. Um, I like seeing things like faculty residency programs, um, things like that, where, where you're sort of identifying the folks that want to break into the field that I'm in and help them get there um, in a way that's effective. Um, and especially when those programs are geared toward people who have been full-time clinicians and maybe don't have a ton of teaching experience. That's excellent. We need to find those great clinicians. The great clinicians are who the students want to learn from. You know, like, I have a question. Is there direct correlation with having um, a terminal academic uh, degree and the amount of passing rate in the MPT? I don't know. If, I have no idea. Okay. No That's, I don't. That would that would be interesting to know because I'm wondering why that is study. that. Oh no, no! I'm not a research person. That's that's all you. I just said someone. It doesn't have to be you. <laughs> someone should do that study. Um, I don't know well, if I have yeah. seen that looked into. It, you know, is there a correlation between board pass rates and you know what proportion of your faculty have a terminal academic degree um, or? You know, how did you do on the section of your boards that were taught by a clinician versus the parts that were taught by a person that doesn't clinically practice anymore? I have absolutely no idea. That seems that like an important be, thing to find that out. Be a great, yes, because again, it all has to make sense. I mean, it does. People are spending a lot of money to get a degree, but they want to be able to use it after they graduate. So that would be good to know so any researchers out there please think about it do a research where are educational research folks reach out <laughs> let's do this um so alex and i are both uh business people and another hot topic that is being touted by a lot of um business coaches business pt coaches is that business classes need to be taught more in uh, PT programs. And the curriculum is already a lot. Um, as I know you teach anatomy, but do you think this call for more business classes in DPT programs makes sense, makes economic sense? I'm not usually a split down the middle type person. <laughs> okay. I, if I have an opinion, I will give it to you. Um, okay. But I think in this case, I might have to take the middle road. Um, okay. I think that that should be an option, maybe an elective. But I think that there are a lot of folks who know by the time they're in their second or third year of PT school, whether they have any interest in running a business. And if you're not one of those people, I don't think it should be a mandatory component. Um, because, I mean, yeah, I think I, I think it's worthwhile information and definitely should be available um, to folks who want to learn that. But I don't think it should be compulsory because, you know, the proportion of PTs that do end up owning their own practice is fairly low. And unfortunately, it's getting lower as we're, you know, more and more practices are taken over by gigantic companies that are not run by physical therapists. Um, but... I definitely knew going into the class where I learned how to be a practice owner in PT school that I was never interested in being a practice owner. 
and do I wish I could have that time back kind of, <laughs> um, but I have many classmates who are successful practice owners and I'm sure got a lot of value out of that course and I'm happy for them. I think it should be available, but as an elective. Now, now going down similar path, do you think that PT students should be educated on reimbursement and you know how basically how you get paid how you make money whether you know you're billing for a practice a hospital group you're billing for yourself um because i feel like part of the misconception that some students may come out with well i have a dpt i'm going to make six figures uh is no real understanding of how the money is made you know the business side of physical therapy absolutely and if you don't know how whoever is getting paid whoever's billing under your npi if you don't know what they're getting and why how do you know what to ask for when you're looking for your next opportunity so I think that without teaching our students as much detail as we can about reimbursement and how it works in various practice settings, we can't expect them to know their value and and have a reasonable expectation of what they can ask for out there. Is that um, something, I, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was gonna say, is that something you got in the program? Um, we, so in our, um, at my institution, we have a leadership and professional development series, and it's the three course series. And one of them primarily does focus on um, regulatory stuff and issues of reimburse, reimbursement and how billing works and things like that. Um, but, you know, we still do have, I think something that our students are still missing a little bit is what to expect in terms of salaries when they're coming out. So they're knowing how the billing works and they're learning where to get the information about how they'll be reimbursed for their services, but they're still going into those initial job interviews, maybe not quite knowing what to expect. And I think that's a tough thing to potentially ask the PT programs to do because it's so variable geographically. Um, here in Pittsburgh, our salaries are abysmally low, um, but as I said earlier, so are our real estate prices. Um, so it kind of balances out, but not quite. But, you know, w when my friends in literally any other American city find out what new grads in Pittsburgh are being offered, they are offended. Um, so I think it would be hard to rely on the schools to do that part of the education because it's so variable. But perhaps that's something ACAP should look into and band together and create better data to share with the students so that they have a better sense of what to expect when they get that first offer. What is that in, in Pittsburgh? What is that range? Um, so new grads in ortho, it, the number probably starts with a six. It's possible in some places the number starts with a five. Um, I, I know, I know. No. Yeah. No, 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 no. Um, so wow. 
my my the new grads that I've heard in the last couple of years um, in private or not private um, areas in outpatient general orthopedic it's been in the range of upper 50s to low 70s now they better they better move up north to to to, to Ohio where where Nick Nick is <laughs> Nick is living today. Wow. Wow. Now, how does that, when you hear of Pittsburgh, you hear of, you know, historically very hardworking community, you know, just kind of all around good, hardworking people. Like, how does that factor in into both therapists into those areas, right? Because you finish PT school and somebody's offering you, you know, high fifties, low to mid sixties, even with the cost of living being what it is, like it still seems pretty tight to do more than feed yourself and, and put a roof over your head. I, yeah, I, I mean, I think what kind of lifestyle you're looking for has to play into it. So, you know, I went to physical therapy school in New York City, right? Could have stayed in New York, uh, would have gotten paid way better, still would have had to have had 12 roommates or moved to Jersey. Um, and some people thrive in that, you know, high density urban environment. I grew up on a dead end road off of a dead end road. <laughs> I'm not one of those people. And so I was like, okay, so, you know, this is 12 years ago. I could stay in New York, take a job making 75 and I'd have to have roommates forever. You know, maybe if I get married, then my spouse becomes my roommate, but um, was never going to have outdoor space to myself unless I also had a very long commute and traffic makes me angrier than maybe anything else on earth. Um, so I chose to come home to Pittsburgh and my first job out of school, I was paid in the low fifties. Um, and, but I had my own apartment with no roommates that had a balcony and I had a very short commute to work. It was a 12 minute drive. And so to me, the lifestyle that I was going to be able to afford, even on that very low salary was better for what I was looking for, um, than staying in a really big city where the salaries were, you know, 20 grand higher. Um, so I think it just, you know, it is the geography a good fit for you. And, and for me, where I live is a great fit for me. Um, but, you know, like I said at the beginning of our conversation, because I also had a mortgage worth of student loans, I was working a lot on the weekends in other settings. Um, but those opportunities were there. You know, it was a good job market. It was easy to find PRN opportunities and even ones that were willing to take me, even though I had no experience in their setting, they were willing to train me and teach me what to do. Um, so I still think this is a wonderful place to be and you can make the finances work for you, um, even though you would be hard pressed to find a city with lower PT salaries than what we have. Um, but, you know, proliferation of programs is another thing a lot of people are concerned about. Um, and I would, I would count myself among that. When you have a really large supply, you can pay less. And we have really a lot of PT programs within like an hour of here. Um, so I think that is helping to suppress those salaries too. Mm, okay. So do a lot of your graduates stay within the Pittsburgh area? Not a lot. Um, Not a lot? Okay. 
I, from what I hear, and I don't have data con to confirm this, but compared to some of the other um, program, DPT programs that there are locally, more of ours are leaving. Um, and I think that might just be, you know, we're a division one school. It's a, you know, bigger name school. People, people know my school. So I think we have a lot of student, more, a lot more students coming from out of state and intending to stay as long as their education and then leaving. And some of them fall in love with our city and then they stay. Um, but I think we do have a higher proportion who leave the area um, than some of the other schools that draw from a slightly more regional, regional crowd. Um, we also have a lot that'll go to travel PT, which I just love hearing their stories and seeing their Instagram photos, living vicariously through them. <laughs> so you, you mentioned, we're going to kind of pivot, but, uh, you're a big golf fan. Um, Obviously, I'm a huge oh, golf fan. I oh I don't boy. know if you oh can boy. see my hat. Oh, boy. Um, but <laughs> a huge Tiger Woods. Uh, uh, um, so that was pretty cool. And I was kind of reading through your your tweets and stuff, uh, and I saw that you're not a big fan of the live uh, <laughs> circuit that's going on. I can't say uh, that I am. <laughs> so it was kind of funny because I'm sitting here reading and you're not a fan of Brooks Kupka, which he's a Florida State guy, so I kind of affiliation. Uh, but, you know, it, t tell me, like, what that's been like for you. I mean, you obviously seem to be kind of like a purist of the sport based on who you like, you know, Rory, Tiger, Justin, those kind of people. But... How did you, you know, backing up a little bit, how did you get into golf? And then, you know, tell me a little bit about where you think the current state of golf is. Sure. So, I mean, I will say that two years ago, I would have said that there's very little Brooks Kepka could do to make me root for him. But having a feud with Bryson DeChambeau was the thing that made me start rooting for him a little bit more. Just argue with the guy that I, that, really bothers me. Um, so I grew up in a golf family. Um, my dad golfs, my uncle golfs. Um, my brother um, went to school for professional golf management um, and uh, has worked as a as an assistant pro, a head pro, and a general manager of a bunch of different golf courses. Um, so I, from the time I was 16, worked in the pro shop at a local golf course where I'm from. Uh, worked there all through high school, college, and even I think one summer in grad school. And um, just big fan. And when I brought my husband home, and he's really into golf, he played college golf. My family was like, "Oh, good, we have a fourth." And <laughs> I was like, "Oh, okay, you can say congratulations. You have earned the Susco family seal of approval. You have you have a single digit handicap. We're all set. You can there you, you can go." Marry. Use them for all the tournaments. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, just we we really watch a lot of golf. We play fantasy golf. My the first year that I was allowed in the fantasy golf league uh, that my husband's best friend runs, I placed so high. Also, I would like a wife of the year award for this. I placed so highly and won a bunch of money that we were able to go to Liverpool to go to a Liverpool game. Uh, because that's his other love is Liverpool football. 
Um, I did not mention so, that. I did notice that on your timeline. I was going to bring that up too. <laughs> uh, yeah, so just big golf fan, love watching it. And yeah, I guess you could say in some respects I'm a purist um, because the people that I tend to root for are sort of your more stereotypical golfers, golf guys, not, not your – not your new age golf bros, but the people who have such a, a love and historical knowledge and respect for the game. So yeah, uh, I love Tiger. I love Rory. I love their leadership in the game. Um, not such a big fan of the folks who have left for the for the Saudi backed live tour. Um, but honestly, it's kind of been a good thing because now they're like there are no villains left. There's there's almost no one on the PGA Tour that I root against now. I'm kind of happy whoever wins. It's great. It's almost always a good story. Every week, I'm like, oh, I'm rooting for you, too. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely been interesting, uh, you know, what what that has done. Uh, kind of separates, in my opinion, the people that were there for the love of the game and then kind of enjoyed everything with it that came from see you, know, you everybody would be kind of silly not to to say that the money that is in golf right now can be largely attributed to what tiger doing right tiger the winnings bring more sponsorship bring diversity to golf um I mean, if you look on tour, the, the different nationalities and, and, and people that are playing this sport, um, you know, and I, I started only been playing golf, truthfully. I started post 2005. That was my first exposure to it. Uh, and then obviously watching Tiger, you kind of get that, that natural draw to it. But I'm Colombian. We've got some. We've had some Colombian guys on tour uh, do actually pretty well. Um, you know, you've got some of you know the the Koreans and and then the women off tour big. So it, it it kind of to me it's a it's a nice example of when you're able to it can elevate. Uh, the game and, and and sometimes i think about you know what if what it would mean for pt if we were able to do you know even to like one one percent of what golf has done right because golf historically white sport you know high upper class you only get to play if you have money like truly play the sport more often than not if you have money i mean even now for me to play like to play greens fees and and all this stuff had a, a, a the more access you give people start to take a a, a love for it um now you mentioned you got a chance to go to anfield how was that now first of all mo and i we're manchester united fans well, no um, he, he he is to remain the fan we beat liverpool we beat arsenal i'm doing all right <sighs> <laughs> I mean, we beat City on, on Sunday, so. <laughs> um, yeah, so 
It was after, so my husband and I have been married eight years, and it was sometime after we got married that um, he started getting into the Premier League when they started um, putting English Premier League games on TV regularly in the U.S. Oh, okay. Um, and he was a big fan of Steven Gerrard, who's a former Liverpool player. Now he's the manager at Aston Villa. And so he became a Liverpool fan. And at first I was like, soccer? That's so boring. What? Give me some American football. And also as a person who loves golf to be like another sport is boring. Most people are like, you you watch golf all day. (laughs) But over time, once I really started to understand the game, because I didn't, I knew very little about soccer. I played it for two years in high school, but I have no skills and I had no idea what I was doing. Um, Once I started to understand the game, I got really excited and, and started getting into it. And um, you can't not fall in love with Mohamed Salah if you are watching the Premier League with any regularity. Uh, one of our strikers, he's from Egypt. He's the best player in the world, in my opinion. Um, and just so engaging and such a great person. Like, you can't not root for the man. Um, so I started getting really into it. And there's a conference that I often go to um, that's hosted by the Osteoarthritis Research Society International. And every other year, it's either in North America or somewhere else in the world. And it happened to be in Liverpool. And so submitted some research, got it accepted to present there, and was like, all right, we're, we're going to Liverpool. But now we got to figure out how to get tickets. And uh, at the time, we were not fan club members, which is kind of the only way, if you don't live in Liverpool, you could try to get a ticket. And so... One of my husband's best friends worked for a company that happened to have a location just outside of Liverpool. And he was like, I know a guy. Let me see if he can figure out how to get you tickets. And we're like, great. So it works out. And all we know is when we get to England, we are supposed to reach out to person that we don't know and have never met. And they will arrange to get us these tickets. So, you know, as Americans, going to a sporting event, we're thinking there are, you know, physical paper tickets that they would hand us and we would go on our merry way and say thank you and leave. And so we email this guy and we're waiting and we're waiting and we're waiting and we're like, does he exist? Are we sure? Is this happening? Did we come here for nothing? And finally, the day before we get these instructions. So this is how you're going to get your tickets. Outside the cop end of the stadium, there's a print shop, like a printing shop go to the print shop and ask for jimbo jimbo has your tickets okay why is the print shop open on sunday morning first of all but okay so that morning we go to the print shop and we're like is jimbo here and this print shop turns out what they print are things related to Liverpool games. So they're selling scarves. They're playing like Liverpool chants on CDs over the intercom system. It's, it's like a party. Everybody in the print shop is blitzed. It's 10 a.m. And we're like, excuse me, is Jimbo here? I think he has our tickets. And Jimbo's like, oh, yeah, come here. So I need to take you to this other guy who's in the bar across the street, might not even know his name anymore at this point. Takes us to this other guy. We have no idea who he is. We haven't heard about him. And they're like, he has your tickets. Just stay with him. And I'm like, we need to stay with him. Why isn't he just handing us a ticket? So eventually what we realize is if you are a season ticket pass holder, you do not get physical tickets. You have like a card that's like a credit card. 
and that's what they scan. So they couldn't give us anything because we needed to give it back so that whoever's tickets we were filling in for that day could have them back for the next week. But you know, there are definitely were points at which we're like, I think we might be getting kidnapped. I don't. <laughs> we eventually we ended up in the game. It was uh, it was a zero zero draw. Oh. Uh, in a game against, I think it was Stoke. Uh, they were already definitely getting relegated, so they didn't care. We were, it was late enough in the season that we knew we were top four and going to Champions League, but couldn't move up or down. So um, the Brits will often refer to that as having your flip-flops on when the game came <laughs> They all had their flip-flops on. The game meant nothing. Um, and we thought we almost died trying to find Jimbo in the, in the print shop and the drunk guy at the bar. But we did get you to the Liverpool game at Anfield, and it was really fun. That is an amazing story. Like, it is. And I do. You never walk alone. That's that's what Liverpool is. <laughs> I'm not sure if what this last guy ended up doing was even called walking at that point. But, <laughs> but we had a good time, and we learned our lesson. So the next time that we were able to go, we joined the fan club and thought – um, tickets through them. So <laughs> you've been more than once? We have been twice. Uh, the second time we beat Bournemouth 3 nothing, and Mo scored a goal, so I was thrilled. That's nice, awesome. nice, nice, nice. Man, it's been it's been great having you on the show. I enjoyed this episode. Uh, we look forward to seeing more content that you post on Twitter. Continue the excellent work that you're doing at University of Pittsburgh and even fighting for increasing diversity, equity, and inclusion in the profession. So every step counts, and we so appreciate you. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you so really much for inviting you. me. This was so much You're fun. Welcome. Thanks. You're welcome. All right, to all the folks, don't forget to subscribe to our channel and follow us, like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Appreciate y'all. Good night. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Allie.